Unfucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G. and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. So you're going to think this is uncharacteristically hysterical on my part, because the subject today, while hiding in plain sight in the Constitution, has been essentially unimaginable since it was first conceived. Something called a convention of states. But bear with me, because you need to hear this. We have turned the the Constitution of the United States into, instead of a charter of liberty and a and a document designed to limit the power of government to its delegated powers, we have turned the Constitution into, essentially, a bill that allows government to do anything except for these few specific areas where we say you're kind of not allowed to do that. It's a complete reversal of what government was supposed to be. And that is why a convention of states is so necessary. That's Ben Shapiro speaking remotely to a gathering of advocates in support of the convention of states movement. Hopefully that gave you enough douche chills to settle in and eavesdrop on a scenario that was once considered a long shot and now has a mathematical chance to actually happen, let's say, within the next decade. And if you're thinking, oh, a decade is a lot, remember that a decade ago, gay marriage wasn't legal yet. Twitter hadn't gone public. And House of Cards wasn't released yet. And Trump was still a reality TV star. And few people imagined that Roe v. Wade would be on the verge of being struck down. It's time to start imagining the unimaginable. Can we get serious now? This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who But it's fun because he curses Chapter one. So like, what the fuck is this thing? Let's start with the issue at hand. Article five of the Constitution. The Congress, whenever two thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or. On the application of the legislatures of two thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which. In either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three fourths of the several states. Or by conventions and three fourths thereof. As the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. Provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article. And that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. 
Let's go through this carefully before we dig into the movement to call a convention. Article 5 of the Constitution outlines the ways in which the Constitution can be amended. The operative word here is outlines, because amendments have come about in different ways, and while there is consensus on the existing amendments, there are disagreements among scholars about the viability of certain paths. The first line says that two-thirds of both houses can propose amendments. This is how every successful amendment thus far has been proposed. The first 10, which we know as the Bill of Rights, were ratified together in 1791. And since then, only 17 more amendments have been ratified, with one of them, the 21st, repealing another, the 18th. If you're wondering how difficult and rare it is to accomplish this, there have been more than 11,000 proposed amendments in our nation's history. There's too many of them. As an aside, going back through and reading the Constitution again, going through each of the amendments, reading court decisions and the debates surrounding the amendments is a really wonderful refresher on our history. My buddy Dan, who I've actually talked about before, is a high school history professor who had actually designed a curriculum in this way, teaching American history through the lens of the amendments. It's a really smart way to approach our history. Okay, bring it back. So Congress can propose and pass constitutional amendments. Got it. That's right. So the second line of the article strikes at the heart of the matter today, and that's the, quote, application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, end quote. This is the Convention of States. So if two-thirds of the now 50 states propose an amendment, it must be officially considered for inclusion in the Constitution. Now, it gets tricky here, and we'll visit this more in a minute, but should an amendment be proposed by two-thirds of the states, which is 34, then it must be adopted by three-quarters of the state legislatures, which is 38. So, taking current news, current events, apart from Congress falling into the hands of Republicans who might then propose a constitutional ban on abortions, for example, there is another path entirely, and that's directly through the states, a maneuver that bypasses Congress altogether. There are several procedural questions that arise when contemplating this particular journey, though. Does it have to happen all at once? Meaning, do the states have to convene to propose an amendment or a series of amendments during a convention? Or can they ratify amendments one by one in state legislatures and then call a convention to try and get three quarters of the states to jump on board? Now, in the latter scenario, which is the one being pursued, by the way, if a state passes an amendment in 2022, and then attempts to overturn it in a convention that has been called, is the original one invalidated? Assuming this kind of scenario, the validity of a convention, regardless of what was proposed or ultimately ratified, would undoubtedly face a challenge at the Supreme Court at some juncture. And given the generational composition of what can only be called the Trump Supreme Court today, do you really trust the outcome? Considering the originalism by convenience leanings of the court, I would have to cast serious doubt on this. It should be mentioned that in the final passage, the framers specifically allude to parts of the Constitution that cannot be touched. The second is easier to unpack, so no amendment can alter the calculation of only two senators per state. So, okay. But the first is a reminder of how deeply slavery is enshrined in our founding and our history. Quote, no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article. So, here are those passages. Section 9, Clause 1. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit, 
shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. Here's Section 9, Clause 4. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. All right, so let's take the first clause. This essentially protects the slave trade until 1808, though it allows for a tax on individual enslaved people not to exceed $10. The slave trade was outlawed in 1800 by an act of Congress and was very much on the minds of the framers. Protecting it for a few more years allowed for unfettered importation and, of course, did nothing to offer rights to those who were enslaved at the time, nor their offspring. This was meant to appease the South, but set some sort of actuarial timeline, in theory, for the end of the practice. See, the framers knew that there would be no constitution, no republic, if it called for the abolishment of slavery. So even in contemplating future revisions to the Constitution, they put in a poison pill to ensure that by 1808, the import of humans for enslavement would be outlawed. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. The fourth clause essentially prohibits direct taxation, which would ultimately be undone by Article 16 of the Constitution, though it maintained a prohibition on interstate taxation of commerce. We went through the exclusions to illustrate that apart from importing humans for slavery, allowing states to tax one another, and changing the number of senators apportioned to the states, an amendment proposed by 34 states and ratified by 38 would be enshrined in the Constitution, basically demonstrating that anything and everything is on the table if you can allow yourself to imagine it. So now you know what the law says, what it excludes, and what is possible. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Asshole, Awesome A., and Ahsoke. Chapter 2. What's the end game here? So there's understanding the provision in the Constitution that allows for states to offer and ratify amendments. Then there's understanding who exactly wants to pursue this avenue and why. The implication behind a convention of states is a no-confidence vote in the federal government. That the federal government is either too big or too powerful and no longer represents the will of the people. So the framers, Madison in particular, gave the states a way to check this power and put whatever the issue is back in the box. So until now, most of the emphasis within the movement has revolved around government spending. Although we'll speak the quiet parts out loud in a bit, let's just focus on that. As for the who is behind this, there is a real movement. There's an organization that is well-funded and has been for decades, pushing for a convention of states focused on limiting the spending authority of the federal government. The number one promoter of this movement is a conservative commentator named Mark Levin, an extremely popular figure with reach through syndicated radio, television appearances, and a podcast with more than 2 million monthly downloads. He might not be on your radar or you may only have a peripheral awareness of Levin, but he's no slouch. Here he is in conversation about the Convention of States just a couple of months ago on his radio show. 
rather than takes to the streets, rather than become Antifa or Black Lives Matter, all the rest of it, we are following the Constitution. I don't know why these guys and gals are so afraid. The Constitution empowers us. That's what it, This language is in the Constitution. This language was adopted by the same people who adopted all the rest of it. And so when you hear these, these state senators, in this case, in South Dakota, saying, I'm concerned about it, that means they're not textualists. That means they're not originalists. There's nothing to be afraid of. Milton Friedman said this was really the only way to fix things. Even Dwight Eisenhower looked at it and said this was probably the only way to fix things. Eric Dirksen, many of you older people like me, you know who he He pointed to it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, James uh, Madison pointed to it as a way to trying to avoid uh, what would become the Civil War. So this is a very, very important lever that we have. And if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. You'll notice the reference to Uncle Dick Noggin in there. Once a fucking again, we have to draw a straight line back to good old Milton Friedman. Here's Uncle Fartnuckle in his own words. And I think myself that there is fundamentally only one way in which you can remedy it. And that is by a political change in the form of constitutional provisions which will set a limit to government spending. Once again, well, you know. Hit it, Manny. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman. That's right. The primary rationale used by conservative proponents of the convention process is to restrain the federal government with a balanced budget amendment. By constitutionally forcing the government not to run deficits, conservatives would be able to achieve a whole host of reforms. Using today's figures, assuming an amendment like this actually came to fruition, the government would have to cut $3 trillion in annual spending, the projected amount of the deficit, this year and every year going forward. So even if we optimistically said, great, cut the military budget, that would leave more than $2 trillion to cut. The entire country would be forced into a do-over. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, you name it. Everything would be slashed and burned in pursuit of a balanced budget. And before you say, that's crazy, who would want to do that? The answer is very, very clear. Conservatives do. This is their backdoor concept to stripping away all spending that matters to our daily lives. And before we open our imaginations to explore all of the social possibilities from an outright ban on abortion or contraception, codifying onerous voting laws that disenfranchise millions or other horrific possibilities, recognize just how much of the United States at present would simply disappear overnight with a balanced budget amendment. The madness of states actually ratifying something like this would seem absurd, given that state aid for schools, budget gaps, health care, roads, etc. would all be cut as well. But apparently, that doesn't bother the Republican-controlled legislatures of 19 states who have already passed legislation calling for a convention of states. Wait, what? This is already a thing? It's not just theoretical? Nope, this is happening. And while the likelihood of obtaining a two-thirds majority is slim today, and three-quarters of states ratifying something so radical is even more slim, we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that 19 of our fellow states, states which unfuckers all over already live in, have already seen fit to take the first step. The Convention of States legislation has already passed both houses in... I feel the Benny Hill song coming. Right you are, 99. Hit it, Manny. 
Georgia, Alaska, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, Indiana, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arizona, North Dakota, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Utah, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, Wisconsin, damn it, Knutson, how did you let this happen? Nebraska, West Virginia, and South Carolina. Chapter 3. Is this what the framers intended? As I've said many times before, when it comes to interpreting the Constitution to interpret the intent of the founders, we don't need to struggle. They literally left behind their study notes in the form of the Federalist Papers. So before we go through a mathematical exercise to determine what advocates of a convention of states need in order to secure an actual compact, let's hear from a couple of our founders to hear what they had to say about this process. There are only a handful of references to the amendment process in their papers, but they are indeed insightful. The bulk of the writing was done by James Madison, which tracks because he was clearly the most consequential author of the procedural and organizational aspects of the Constitution. This first passage is a reflection on the debate surrounding federalism. Essentially, how much power should be maintained by a central authority versus the states? Most modern conservatives are federalists at heart, seeking to limit the authority of the federal government, which was just as rich of a debate back then as it is now. Here's Madison from Federalist 39. Quote, If we try the Constitution by its last relation to the authority by which amendments are to be made, we find it neither wholly national nor wholly federal. Were it wholly national, the supreme and ultimate authority would reside in the majority of the people of the Union, and this authority would be competent at all times, like that of a majority of every national society to alter or abolish its established government. Were it wholly federal, on the other hand, the concurrence of each state in the Union would be essential to every alteration that would be binding on all. The mode provided by the plan of the convention is not founded on either of these principles. The proposed Constitution, therefore, even when tested by the rules laid down by its antagonists, is, in strictness, neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. Oh, stop it. This is good stuff. So in this passage, as in much of his writing, we see Madison working out the issue of states' rights in real time. With respect to a convention of states, he's walking a fine line between nationalism and federalism and ensuring that the high bar of two-thirds for proposing and three-quarters for ratifying prevents absolute power to either interest. He further codifies this in Federalist 43, saying, quote, To have required the unanimous ratification of the 13 states would have subjected the essential interests of the whole to the caprice or corruption of a single member. It would have marked a want of foresight in the convention, which our own experience would have rendered inexcusable, end quote. So this is pretty self-explanatory. Basically, he's preventing the tyranny of the minority by requiring a majority rather than unanimity. So those are the procedural protections that inform the convention process, though it tells us little about what kind of propositions would rise to this level. On this, Hamilton offers a little more insight, which we'll get to in a minute. But Madison does remark further in Federalist 43 that, quote, the rights of humanity must in all cases be duly and mutually respected, whilst considerations of a common interest and, above all, the remembrance of the endearing scenes which are past, and the anticipation of a speedy triumph over the obstacles to reunion will, it is hoped, not urge in vain moderation on one side and prudence on the other, end quote. Boring. Will you knock it off? 
It's clear that Madison is pressing for cooler heads to prevail and that any amendments be, at their core, moral. That's about as didactic as Madison gets, by the way. Hamilton, on the other hand, far more flowery and high-minded in speaking to a convention of states, begins the following sentiment in Federalist 85 by quoting David Hume, quote, To balance a large state or society, whether monarchical or republican, on general laws is a work of so great difficulty that no human genius, however comprehensive, is able, by the mere dint of reason and reflection, to effect it. The judgments of many must unite in the work. Experience must guide their labor. Time must bring it to perfection. And the feeling of inconveniences must correct the mistakes which they inevitably fall into their first trials and experiments, end quote. Then Hamilton, in his own words, continues, quote, These judicious reflections contain a lesson of moderation to all the sincere lovers of the Union and ought to put them upon their guard against hazarding anarchy, civil war, a perpetual alienation of the states from each other, and perhaps the military despotism of a victorious demagogue in the pursuit of what they are not likely to obtain, but from time and experience, end quote. Okay, so before we unpack that a little, just prior to him quoting Hume, he offers his own sentiment in Federalist 85, which is, quote, For my own part, I acknowledge a thorough conviction that any amendments which may, upon mature consideration, be thought useful will be applicable to the organization of the government, end quote. So what's hanging over these guys when they committed all of this to writing and, of course, assembling the Constitution itself is the issue of slavery. In so many ways, the sentiments behind the procedural aspects of the Constitution were acknowledgments of America's Achilles heel. And while it's not for us to pursue today, there are so many scenarios contained within the procedural elements they established and the sentiments therein that speak to the tortured process of trying to create a nation with morals while protecting an institution as evil as slavery. It's just fascinating shit. But for our purposes today, we have to examine not only the amendment process, but the current push toward it. And by the way, no matter what you hear in the future about this issue, you've just heard or read every single thing written about it from the perspective of the founders. So anything else that surrounds this is conjecture. It's interpretation and entirely subjective. So to be as objective and clear as possible, I think it's reasonable to extract the following two sentiments from Article 5 itself and the Federalist Papers passages that speak to it. First, as Hamilton mentions, any amendment should relate to the organization of the government. So in my mind, that excludes moral clauses like abortion, prohibition, racial issues, essentially any of the hot-button topics surrounding identity politics in this day and age. Second, as we hear from Madison, it should be really hard to do and reflect the will of the majority. It's not supposed to set the states against one another. It's supposed to bring them together. So with this as our baseline, let's look at the movement in front of us and do a little math. Boring. Running out our sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by pro-level member, Unfucking Phil. Chapter 4. We might need more states. 
Now it's time for us to be leaders among leaders. We're going to save our nation. Exercising our rights as states under the Constitution in an Article 5 convention. This is what we have to do. You have proven that the people of the United States are ready to hold the first Article 5 convention in the history of this country. That clip that you just heard is from an actual fucking dry run of a convention of states. Representatives from all over the country gathered in 2016 to test Article 5 and hold a theoretical convention. So a couple of things. They did it first because there's never been an attempt to hold a convention. So the organizing group behind it, a well-funded group called the Convention of States Action, wanted to create the blueprint. Second, it was expensive to produce. Now, before we look at the gains that they've made, let's look at who's behind it. For starters, their biggest endorsements come from a who's who of terrible people. You heard from Mark Levin and Ben Shapiro before, but other luminaries include Sean Hannity, Rand Paul, Sarah Palin, Ron Johnson, and Charlie Kirk. More troublingly, considering this is about states' rights, you have assholes like these. The thing, though, that I'm encouraged about, Steve, is if you go in the country, if you go in the individual states, I actually think there is a widespread belief in the reforms you discuss and I've discussed. And one way to do it would be doing it through those state legislatures because the dysfunction in Washington is not good for our individual state governments either. That's Florida governor and presumed presidential hopeful Ron DeFuckface. Not to be outdone, there's also this shit given. Hi, I'm Texas Governor Greg Abbott, and I want to thank each of you for what you're doing in the Convention of States movement. I know from our experience here in Texas what it takes to pass a Convention of States resolution in each state. It takes dedicated activists like you to show up and make sure that your voices are heard. This movement literally has support from the worst people in the country, a reason in and of itself to be very afraid. But what's more troubling is what Abbott said. He knows what it takes to pass a COS resolution because Texas was one of the 19 states that made it happen. So it's math time. Time to really examine the balance of the nation and do our best Steve Kornacki to try and figure this all out. Okay, so first, let's review the 19. So we have Georgia, Alaska, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, Indiana, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arizona, North Dakota, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Utah, Mississippi, Wisconsin, Nebraska, West Virginia, and South Carolina. Thank you, 99. Now, in terms of the effort already underway, let's look at the states and groupings. So we have certain states that I'll call on the cusp. These are states where legislation calling for a COS has already passed one chamber, has control of both state houses and the governor's office, and an active convention of states lobby. As of right now, this group includes Iowa, South Dakota, and New Hampshire. Bringing us to 22. Okay, then there's a grouping of states that I'll call primed. These are states where Republicans are in control and have an active lobby, but no legislation has passed yet. Ohio and Wyoming have both chambers, the governor's office, and an active campaign. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Kansas, and Kentucky have at least two positions of control, and an active lobby. And Montana and Idaho have all three, but no active lobby as of yet. But as primed states in Republican control, they're in a position to be swayed. All in, that's another eight states. 
That puts you at 30. Troubling, but still shy of the two-thirds needed. All right, all right. So that brings us to the up-for-grabs states that always blow with the wind. So the question is whether there are four more to be found out of these five states. In Minnesota, you have a divided legislature with an inactive lobby, but always a precarious red-blue dynamic. Same thing in Maryland. On the other hand, you have New Mexico, which already passed legislation in one house. Then you have Virginia and North Carolina, also precarious red-blue states that have divided houses, but one that already passed the legislation. So if you pick off a Maryland, Virginia, New Mexico, and North Carolina and add them to our primed states, you have enough to call a convention. <sighs> okay, I get it. But what about the faithfully blue states? I mean, just calling a convention, it's not enough to actually amend the Constitution. Yeah, that, and that is where the hope lives. This blue wall that is New York, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Delaware, Illinois, Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Hawaii, and Colorado. These reliably blue states with Democratic chambers are a theoretical bulwark against the red tide that would be required to get a three-quarter majority for ratification of any amendment, or more plainly, that gets us to 38 states. But let me ask you something. How confident are you that all these states will hold over the next decade? Colorado and Nevada were red states as recent as 2004. Delaware, New Jersey, Maine, Vermont, and California went for George Bush Sr. Do you have a sense that the country is moving to the left at this moment or to the right? If you want to examine this math for yourself, we actually built a cool little color-coded map on our website. You can just go to unftr.com COS to see how we group the states. Beyond the terrifying math, there's also a question of procedure and how fair or unfair the process might be. Common Cause, which has strongly opposed the COS movement, rightly questions the particulars of a convention since it's not specifically contemplated anywhere in the Constitution or even in the Federalist Papers. Here they are. Quote, it's also unclear how delegates would be chosen. If the selections were made by today's largely gerrymandered state legislatures, the convention would likely have a decidedly Republican bent, despite the fact that surveys show fewer Americans identify as Republicans than as Democrats. If delegate selection were based on population size, then larger states, where Democrats generally have an advantage, would produce a convention tilting toward the left. What if the state petitions are not identical? Would Congress still have to act? What if Congress was deadlocked and failed to act on these petitions? Could a court step in and order the convention convened? If Congress acted, how would the convention work? Who would choose the delegates and decide how many each state would send? Would the convention's work be limited to one subject, like the balanced budget plan or campaign finance reform? Or might delegates undertake a wholesale rewrite of the national charter? And if the convention agreed on one or more amendments, would Congress be required to forward them to the states for ratification? End quote. So there are more questions than answers. But one has to imagine that the questions would be answered not by the best political process, but by the biggest wallet. Believe it or not, there's pretty big money behind this movement already. The Convention of States Action Organization raises almost $7 million a year from dark money sources. While the website doesn't list employees, the company LinkedIn claims 144 people who work there. Though I suspect a bunch are volunteers. Anyway, 
This entirely white team of staff members and volunteers with so many fucking flags and eagles and shit jammed into their profile pictures are busy doing the bidding of some pretty shitty donors. Mark Meckler, the head of the organization and co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, is a Gold Circle member of the Council for National Policy, a secret right-wing Christian nationalist organization. And while Convention of States action itself doesn't disclose funders, Sourcewatch uncovered a few that tie back to the Mercer family, Koch brothers, and groups funded by Leonard Leo, the dude who hand-selected Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Meckler, the face of the organization, has been quoted as saying, Black Lives Matter as an organization is evil. It is anti-American. It is anti-nuclear family. They say this on their website. It is pro-transgender. It's a mental illness, by the way. You can't be pro-mental illness. It's a terrible thing. End quote. So the group behind this push is inspired by Milton Friedman, in bed with right-wing Christian nationalists, funded by the Koch brothers and the Mercers, promoted by Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, and Ben Shapiro, and run by one of the biggest fucking assholes in America. Do I have your attention yet? Chapter 5. Bring it home, Max. The Convention of States was a big deal leading up to Trump's election, and it had some momentum during his first year. But it appeared to lose some momentum, likely because it became apparent that the court was going to belong to the Trump wing of the party. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that four states, Wisconsin, Nebraska, West Virginia, and South Carolina, all passed legislation in 2022. This is game on, unfuckers. They're going for it. When you look at the money involved and understand that the balanced budget amendment goes all the way back to Uncle Fucknugget, it should be crystal clear that they're in this for the long haul. This effort isn't going anywhere. These motherfuckers are more patient than a Buddhist monk. But the thought of this happening just seems so remote. Science fiction, too Orwellian, right? Think about the timeline, though, from Friedman on. Think about everything that we've covered from the Powell Memo, Mont Pelerin, and James Buchanan right through till today. Citizens and pundits alike were stunned by the leak of the draft decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Stunned! The reaction to Trump's election was one of astonishment. The upending of norms, can he really do that? On January 6th last year, we watched a group of domestic terrorists storm the fucking Capitol in an attempt to stop the certification of the election, and we couldn't believe it. But this shit doesn't happen overnight, and nothing is off-limits anymore, especially if you've put the time and energy into planning it. Nothing. And with the Convention of States, we're not talking about something that could take us by surprise. They're literally telling us what they're planning on doing. Since the 1970s, it's been move to the right, hold. Move to the right, hold. You cannot underestimate the power of their salesmanship on these issues. By cloaking the Convention of States in a balanced budget process and seeking to limit the overreach of the federal government to place more power in the hands of the states to rule the majority, they're offering the American people a Trojan horse. And what's inside? Please, test the limits of your imagination. A federal ban on abortion? Overturning Griswold by implementing a federal ban on contraception? Immigration? It would unleash 
all of the nativist tendencies on the right and give them a procedural mechanism to overturn the will of the people and rewrite the Constitution. They can't take away amendments in theory, but they can add them. So the sky's the limit. Anything not already specifically enumerated in the Constitution would be on the table. Think of all the puzzle pieces they've had to put together over the years to get to where we are. We've covered so many of them before. Now, taken independently, they're terrifying enough. But put them together, and the picture should be terrifyingly clear. Partisan redistricting. Ensure that minority parties have the ability to retain the majority in state legislatures, regardless of popular vote counts. Both major parties have engaged in this, but the Republicans got an earlier jump and have been more successful. How successful have they been? Well, let's look at the balance of power in the states. As of March of 2022, Democrats control 18 state Senate chambers and Republicans control 32. As of March of 2022, Democrats control 18 House chambers and Republicans control 29 with one chamber split. As of March of 2022, we have 22 Democratic governors and 28 Republican governors. How about voter suppression? In 2013, the Supreme Court, then with a smaller conservative majority than now, struck down a crucial formula contained within the Voting Rights Act that effectively shifted the burden of proof from the state to the voter to determine legitimacy. It set off a spate of voter disenfranchisement laws, most of which have been upheld at the state level that have disproportionately targeted voters of color. Or Citizens United, allowing unlimited sums of dark money to influence our politics. Is there any part of you that believes that were a convention of states to be called, that the proposed amendment or amendments would be written by anyone other than wealthy dark money donors? Well, I can answer that for you already. Because the proposed amendments in the dry run of the convention were written by dark money darling ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. So much of what we cover can leave you in a state of paralysis, and I get it but we have to understand what's at stake and how they're coming for us to really do anything about it. As far as what can be done about it, well, there are a few things. Let's say they get enough states to actually call for a convention. Well, guess what? There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? That's right. We too could take this approach. Go ahead, call your convention because we're gonna show up with New York, New Jersey, California, and 35 other states in our pocket and make abortion legal in the Constitution. Good answer. Like the way you think. Interesting, but a little too risky for my taste. Another way to skin this cat is to stack the deck in our favor. Statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of work. That's true, it is a lot of work. Plus. We should probably ask the Puerto Ricans if they even want to be part of this fucking shit show. Hey, Maria from Puerto Rico, what say you? You want to help save the country or are we talking independence? Let us know. So I guess that leaves only one option. Vote. Just fucking vote. Locally. Now, everyone talks about the national elections and elections do have consequences. Midterm turnout matters. Every vote counts. Well, while they're distracting you with the big shiny objects on the national scene, they're rubbing some shine right under our noses and in our backyards. Every state and local election that you blow off, they're showing up. Can't name your assembly person or state senator? That's a problem. 
These bottom-of-the-fucking-barrel podunk political asshats, chosen by some mouth-breathing chairperson because they've stuffed enough envelopes for the local library board election, are the ones that might wind up fucking up the whole shebang for the rest of us because they're too stupid to understand the big picture. Balanced budget amendment? Durr, that sounds like a good idea. Picture, if you will, the stupidest local state Republican official that you know and then imagine them partaking in a real-life constitutional amendment process in Washington, D.C. to make sure the federal government balances the budget. I can see it. Can you? Make Puerto Rico a state, if they'll have us. Do not sleep on local elections. Mark Meckler is an evil motherfucker. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. 99, I have a question. I can't guarantee I'll have an answer. Do you think that this is an important episode to do right now? Or does it detract from the bigger issues going on in the country? No, I think it just makes the bigger issues scarier. Okay. Does it feel like a really far off remote possibility when you put it in that? That's why I wanted to timestamp it when you put it in the framework of like, you know, 10 years ago, Donald Trump wasn't the fucking president. Like a lot happens in a decade. When I was reading the script last night, I was like, Gay marriage was legalized over 10 years ago. And then I Googled it. It was only 2013. Oh, no, 2015. Yeah, it was legalized in a couple of states for the first time. I was in shock. That's like yesterday. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I just for some reason, I guess I assumed my brain like, oh, as soon as Obama got into office, he did it. But no, on a way out, he did it. Yeah. And thinking about hearing Milton Friedman talk about it actually really did give me chills when I looked at it because that wasn't on my radar when I was putting it together. So I heard it mentioned in the other clip and I was like, wait, this fucking guy was talking about, of course he was talking about it. The balanced budget was everything to Friedman. So of course that idea would have started with him. And there are other clips of him being more specific about calling a convention to actually pass a constitutional amendment like that. So this, I mean, these ideas they 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 were seeded and in really fertile ground in that transition from the Keynes era to the Friedman era. And I think what, what just amazes me is how they don't fucking let go. Like, and, and this isn't probably fair, but like, let's take gay marriage for an example. That was the culmination, similarly, on the left of decades of fucking work and sweat and blood and tears people who laid their lives down for that cause and then they got there and Roe in a different way similar but in a different way was also the culmination of advocacy for decades and decades and decades and what scares me about the left today is that Roe is being taken away and 
I feel as though gay marriage was was something that they they dangled in front of us and said, sure, you can have that. We'll come back for that later. If that makes you feel good about yourself self right now and actually get, gave Republicans in certain you know purple states some cover in their uh, reelections. But now that the conservative white Christian base has really been able to co-op the, the authoring process of a lot of this legislation, it just feels like not only do they have more momentum, they have more stick to than the left does. Are they just more hateful and that fuels them? I, easy, quick answer. I want to say yes. And maybe their hate is more powerful than the, than the love. Because we're tired. Yeah, we can't be, t- we can't afford to be tired. And we didn't even, and, and, ugh, and I hate doing this because I know that there are still unfuckers, even though I've been, you know, kind of brutal about it, that are still aligned with this what they believe, what they perceive to be the left or center left Obama wing of the party. But going through what actually happened during the Obama years, since it's fresh in everybody's minds, it was still a hard shift to the right policy-wise. Clinton, which we are going to unpack shortly, was a severe hard right turn in this country. Yet with these, I don't want to say small, but Specific social issues, When, if we get progress, there's a feeling that we have some momentum on the left side, but we really don't because they're, they're procedurally undermined. It's what makes a person like Steve Bannon so fucking terrifying to me. The fact that he is calling on volunteers around the country to show up and volunteer at the precinct level for this midterm election as a trial run for the next big election to see whether or not they can stack enough individual precincts in important districts around the country to literally take vote tallies at the end of the night and throw them in the fucking garbage and invalidate them. That's his master plan. So you got him working on that. But that's illegal, right? It is. <laughs> Just joking. In theory. Okay. But a lot of the laws, that the, the voter disenfranchisement laws that they've passed were also illegal until they wound up in court cases and then were by some federal Trump appointed judge, you know, allowed to stand. And then if the Supreme Court doesn't take up, which doesn't take up those cases, which in and of itself is judicial activism by overt judicial restraint, then these things get codified into the U.S. code. And they're doing it. They're picking us apart every fucking step of the way. I have a question for you that I was thinking about. Do they believe everything they're saying or is it just the most sensational gets it done? Like, are all of these people like the Ron DeSantis? Is he that delusional or is he just know how to use his power? Are these people all that bad? I think in the case of the people that are in the spotlight today, let's take a Steve Bannon, for example. He has said, I, I want to tear this all down and start over. So that's what we're going to do. So he's been very deliberate about that. He's been very outspoken about that. I believe that a Ron DeSantis or a Greg Abbott or a Kemp, as we've covered, are all, you don't get to be in that position without being wily. I think they are all smart enough to understand what really works with their base. But How do you just hold, and for the, the people who vote for them, I just, I mean, this is, I don't understand how people can just be so hateful and so bigoted and it, I just don't get it. 
Yeah, and, and what scares me about the balanced budget amendment is it really is the ultimate Trojan horse. And I don't, I'm not, I hadn't even thought through all of the other avenues by which they could actually do that. But we've got a really big problem ahead of us if the midterms shake out the way everybody thinks they're going to shake out. And then if that leads to just legislative intransigence, just everything stops, right? For the next two years. And we allow the current economic forces to just continue unabated with no checks and balances. Are we pushing ourselves with the Fed raising interest rates and inflation still kind of staying out of control and the eviction crisis, you know, the moratorium ending and the eviction crisis, you know, taking root, the housing crisis? When you put all of these things together, does it portend some sort of economic crisis at the base that? happened during the Democrats' tenure, so it's going to be hung on them, even though it was brought to us over years by Republicans. Does that deliver us a DeSantis with a Republican Senate? Very likely. And does it flip the House? Does it leave them in complete control? At which point, they themselves could kill the filibuster and have majority rule and then codify all of these dastardly things into the Constitution anyway, because any challenge would be taken up to Trump's generational court. In which case, Convention of States is still a long-term plan for them. It's still something that they would actively pursue and work towards, because why the fuck not? Because at some point, the pendulum would theoretically swing back. You know, maybe a couple of the justices die, and, you know, and we're looking 10 years out, and the Democrats are back in charge, but we would literally have to wait that long. I think the, the the reason that I want to lay this out there and I want to keep hammering away at what's at stake in terms of climate and in terms of legislation and in terms of dark money and campaign finance reform and all of that is to let everybody know that, you know, whatever your pet issue is, it's all on the table and it's all there for the taking from their perspective. They'll be able to take it all away from us if we don't come together and figure out how to put up a united front on the left to just say it's enough. I don't want to be here anymore. It is kind of troubling. You, you know, you think about like, we have a little bit of momentum and then it just goes, just goes away. I'm going to go to, I think they'll have me in New Zealand. Oh, I think the Kiwis will take you. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Honestly, I kind of want to see Scotland. Yeah. I've always wanted to. We'd have to talk to a Scottish friend about whether or not you want to stay there. I am in love with Barcelona. 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 Okay, so you go there. I'll go to Scotland. We'll send each other postcards. We'll meet in the middle. Okay. What's in the middle? Austria. I don't know. My people. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Is that where you're from? It's part of it. Okay. I'm, Rush I'm Russian right. and That's German. Right. Mm -hmm. Now I'm unveiling. I'm a. I'm part Austrian. I've got two more. I'll find out in, in due time on fuckers. <laughs> As can, far we, as, we could do like a sound of music tour. Okay. I like that. Yeah. That's fun. We can go to the Abbey. I have a very special place in my heart for uh, Edelweiss. Does it make you cry? Every time. Bless my homeland forever. Mm -hmm. Which version though? The version he sings with Liesl? Or the version he sings at the, the festival? The one my mom sang me to put me to sleep. Mm, that's so sweet. Mm -hmm. So I know every word. I like that. Me too. 
So we have a few resources. There's no books. The only books that you can read on this were actually written by Mark Levin. Great. <laughs> so not putting Buy those them. in the bookshop. <laughs> Buy them, but then burn them. Is yeah, the only the case now. where book where book burning is accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear one of the uh one of I think it was a governor? When they said, Well, you know, okay, so you're banning these books, you take them out of the library, then what? He's like, You burn them for all I care. I'm like, oh, we're there. <laughs> let's just burn oh, let's that out burn loud. our bras. Bras and books and fuck it. Just bras one big and bonfire. books. That's like a good um like a some sort of For the left and the right. Or like a girl I was thinking like a girls' night theme. Oh, right. You like bring a bring a bra that you don't like you well, I guess you don't wear a bra, but you bring your bra and then you burn it mm-hmm. and you read books together. Banned books. Yeah. And Banned then, books and bras. I like it. I don't know where the bras come in, but I'm 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 trying here. I, I no, I think it's fine. If there's any sororities out there who want that as a mixer theme, you can have it on the house. Well, the resources that we do have, we don't have anything on bras or band books. But we have a link to the Convention of States Action website. Don't burn, forget, you can burn go the to, website. Yeah, can you burn that? Uh, find the server that it's on. Ooh. You can go to our site, unftr.com/cos. We put the map up there to kind of uh, visually illustrate the math that we were doing to get to this theoretical thirty-eight. Uh, Common Cause has written a lot about this. Um, So we linked something called The Dangerous Path, Big Money's Plan to Shred the Constitution. Source Watch, we linked to uh, give you kind of the money and the people behind Convention of States action. We also linked Griswold versus Connecticut. It's from the Planned Parenthood website. But to me, that seems like it's such an obvious next place for the conservative movement to go to ban contraception. Everybody's talking about it. Yeah, they're saying it out loud. So just, you gotta you ha- you have to look at that and get familiar with what actually the case law said. Now that Griswold was in the case of um, Clark Griswold of Clark Griswold, <laughs> and I think it was of the uh, European vacation. Yes, right? um, that one related to privacy in the home for married couples. Obviously, that was updated with additional case law since then. But what's interesting about that is that in this precedent and in in many others, they're talking about rights specifically not enumerated in the Constitution. For example, privacy. The word privacy does not appear in the Constitution, but through these cases and the precedents, it's sort of been enshrined as a right. And so the right to your body as an individual, the right to privacy and the decisions that you make, because now you think about they want they probably will look to ban abortion pills and plan B being sent in the mail because they'll be able to access that. That'll be the next place that they go. Well, that is that strikes at the heart of privacy, strikes at the heart of individual liberty and decision making. And they'll they'll attack that from a, you know, an interstate commerce perspective, you know, because it violates federal law. There's ways there's very clear paths for them to do all of these things once they take Roe v. Wade as the baseline precedent out of the equation. So I think it's good to get familiar with all of this case law on fuckers, not to become constitutional law scholars, uh, but to actually understand what's at stake. Because when you pull one thing out, there's a whole other Jenga you know, board that crumbles along with it. Because it, I think it's kind of hard for people to understand when they look at it. They'll be like, well, how the, how the fuck can they do that? Well, they're pulling the underpinnings of all these things away from us to make the other things easier for them to attack. 
but I do want to keep your focus on the other things that they're doing because when it comes to what I can do in my daily life, other than just shout at the rain or move to New Zealand or go to Scotland, the one thing that you can do is really start to understand local politics. A lot of this shit happens there, believe it or not. Not only that, if you get entrenched in local politics and you start to understand what's at stake with your assembly people or your state senators, those committee people that make the decisions as to who winds up in the ballot are also the same people that wind up making the decisions for who winds up on the congressional ballot as well. So it there is linkage between the state level and the federal level when you get involved in, in, in local politics. So just keep your eye on that and start pushing your local chapters and doing some local activism to get to really understand what's at stake. So there we go. Yeah, that was, I got nothing to add. Well, then rallying as, the troops, as always, unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny of the Faces. Boring. Our show is lovingly produced by the great, the powerful, the competent and capable uterus bearing. <laughs> oh, don't out me. Right. Ninety nine. I got ninety nine problems and this is all of them. <laughs> exactly. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Our show is hosted by Plan B and distributed by the U.S. Mail. Get on it, unfuckers. Send us your comments. Did you know that Plan B has a weight limit, though? Excuse me? A lot of people didn't know this. I I don't think I knew till recently. There's a weight limit. So, like, I think it's 150 pounds or something like that. So if you happen to be someone who weighs more than that, Plan B isn't as effective. Oh, man. So it's not even surefire. So, you know, birth control, condoms. Yeah. All of that. Dental dams. I, I, yep. That's what's uh, abstinence. (laughs) Go down that route if you want to. I can say maybe it is time to withhold. You say, what do you mean, incels? No, it's time for for, uh, blue women in this country to just withhold from red men. Who, what makes you think that we were sleeping with red men anyway? Yeah, that's true, too. Send us your comments, your suggestions, your questions, everything that you got to UNFTRpod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRpod. We did something on the Facebooks, by the way, with our Facebook message. We kind of put our own out-of-the-office reply there just because it was getting difficult for us to respond to messages there. So if you want to get in, please engage with us on social. Uh, but if you want to leave us a message... Our preference is that you would actually come to our website at unftr.com and fill out one of the forms there. We get a lot of contact forms, which is cool. Or just send us an email uh, at, uh, what is it? Um, hmm? Unftrpod at gmail.com. Become a member, like so many others have done, to keep supporting our work and so we can keep growing this network at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. Remember, 99 curates the list of not just the books that we recommend and that we source, but also uh, books that have been recommended and vetted uh, by unfuckers. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. And read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. And remember, we're never going to charge for that. Well, this was fun. (laughs) Sorry. Hang in there, unfuckers. You got us. We got you. And I got Max. And I got you. I'll catch you next week. Bye.